Welcome back to the Hemingway List. It's the podcast that you love to listen to. And today we're talking about book two, chapter 25 of The Red and the Black. Operation Make Matilda Jealous is underway. Swimsuit the mom from Fishy said, Well, I'm finding it refreshing to read about these silly young men spending all this energy on nonsensical, romantic, intriguing, double smiley face. Laura Westage said, he's taking it so seriously. But Matilda deserves it, whatever happens. Jan Brunt said, this book has really confounded expectations. I love it. (laughs) It has become quite comical in this last, I don't know, few chapters. I don't know, probably about the last ten chapters even, since this whole Matilda saga. They're just so ridiculous together. It's quite entertaining. And also, I find it quite ridiculous and entertaining that now he's like an international spy. (laughs) Like, just out of sort of nowhere. Uh, But it's kind of fun. I like it. It's kind of a bit of a goof, this book. It's a bit of a goof. Anyway, speaking of a bit of a goof, let's keep reading. Quick conversation today, because why not? Oh, it's going to be a quick chapter too. It's only about two pages long, three pages long, I should say. So, we're going to set a speed record for the shortest podcast episode for a while. Here we go. Chapter 26 is called Love in the Mind. There also was, of course, in Adeline, that calm patrician polish in the address, which never can pass the octial line of anything which nature would express. Just as a mandarin finds nothing fine, at least his manner suffers not to guess that any thing he views can greatly please. Don John, Canto eight, no, thirteen, stanza eighty-four. There's a touch of lunacy in the way this whole family sees things. Thought the Marachal. They are infatuated with their young Abe, who only knows how to listen, though with rather fine eyes. It is true. For his part, Julian made in the Marchal's ways perhaps slightly too perfect an example of that patrician calm, which suggests an impeccable politeness and still more the impossibility of any lively emotion. Unexpected actions, a failure in perfect self-control, would have scandalised Madame de Favoux almost as much as the absence of a grander, of a grand manner towards her inferiors. The slightest sign of sensibility would, in her eyes, be a sort of moral inebriation, highly embarrassing and mightily destructive, of what a person of her rank owed to herself. Her great pleasure was to talk of the king's last hunting party and her favourite book, The Memoirs of the Duc de Saint-Simon, above all the genealogical sections. Julian knew the place which, according to the disposition of the lighting, was most congenial to Madame de Fervac's beauty. He would find himself there in advance of her, but take great pains to turn his chair so that he could not see Matilda. Amazed at his persistence in finding, in hiding from her, the latter left the blue sofa one day and came to work at a little table near the Marchal's chair. Julian, by peering under Madame de Fervac's hat, could see her fairly close too. Those eyes that held his fate at their disposal at first frightened him, then jolted him violently out of his habitual apathy, 
He began to talk, and talk very well. He addressed his words to the March Owl, but his sole object was to work on Matilda's soul. His talk became so animated that Madame de Favax ended by not understanding what he meant. This was an initial point in his favour. If it had occurred to Julian to finish it off, it... With a few mystical German phrases of elevated religiosity and Jesuitical tendencies, the Marchal might immediately have classed him among those superior men called upon to redeem the time. Since, said Mademoiselle de la Mole to herself, he has such awful taste as to talk at so great a length to Madame de Fervax, and with such warmth, I shall not listen any more. She kept her word for the whole of that remainder of the evening, though with difficulty. At midnight, as Matilda took up her mother's candlestick to accompany her to her room, Madame de la Mole paused on the stair to deliver a comprehensive eulogy to Julian. This aggravated Matilda's bad mood. She could not get to sleep. An idea occurred to her which calmed her. What I find despicable might well make him a most deserving fellow in the Marchal's eyes. As to Julian... He had now done something. He was less unhappy. His eyes chanced on the portfolio bound in Russian leather in which Prince Korosov had enclosed his gift of fifty-three letters. Julian noticed a memorandum at the foot of the first letter. No. Number one. No. Number one should be sent a week after the first encounter. I'm late, Julian cried. It is an age since I met Madame de Favax. He immediately set himself to copying this first love letter. It was a homely homily full of virtuous phrases and killingly dull. Julian had the good fortune to fall asleep over the second page. A few hours later, the bright light of day surprised him, huddled over his table. Among the most painful moments of his existence was when each morning, as he awoke, he learned his misery afresh. On that particular day, he finished off his copying almost with a laugh, was it really possible, he asked himself, to find a young man who writes like this? He counted several sentences, nine lines long, at the foot of the original. He saw a note in pencil. One delivers these letters oneself on horseback, black cravat, blue frock coat. One hands the letter to a porter with an air of contrition, profound melancholy in one's eyes, if one chances to see a lady's maid furtively wipe the eyes, address a word to the lady's maid. All this was faithfully performed. What am I doing is what I am doing is pretty impudent, thought Julian, as he issued from the Hotel de Vervax, but so much the worse for Korosov. To dare write to so celebrated a fount of virtue, I will be treated with the utmost scorn, and nothing would amuse me more. At bottom, it is the only comedy I should appreciate. Yes, to cover the odious object that I call myself with ridicule would divert me. If I believe in myself, I would commit some crime or other for the sake of amusement. For the last month, the high point in Julian's existence had been when he put his horse back in the stables. Korosov had expressly forbidden him under the pretext what any under any pretext whatever to look at the mistress who had abandoned him. But the gait of his horse that she knew so well, the way in which Julian tapped his whip on the stable door to call a groom, sometimes tempted Mademoiselle de la Mole to stand behind her window curtain. The muslin was so fine that Julian could see through it. By looking under the brim of his hat in a certain way, he could make out Matilda's form without being able to see her eyes. Consequently, he said to himself, she cannot see mine, so it isn't looking at her at all. That evening, Madame de 
except for Varks, behaved to him precisely as though she had not received the philosophic, philosophic, mystical and religious dissertation he had delivered to her porter that morning with so melancholy an air. The previous evening chance had shown Julian the way to eloquence. He positioned himself so as to be able to see Matilda's eyes. She, for her part, left the blue sofa an instant after the marshal came in, which meant deserting her usual company. Monsieur de Croisnois showed some consternation over this new caprice. His obvious unhappiness relieved the sharpest of Julian's pains. This unexpected turn in his experience led him to talk like an angel, and since self-approbation slithers even into hearts that serve as temples of the most august virtue, when he got into her carriage again, the marshal said to herself, Madame de la Mole is right, this young priest does have some distinction. It must be that at first my presence intimidated him. In fact, everything one encounters in this house is very frivolous. The only virtues I see are those helped on by advancing years, and they were in great need of the chilling effect of age. This young man has been able to perceive the difference. He writes well, but I am very much afraid that the plea he makes in his letters for enlightenment, through my advice, is at root nothing but a sentiment that does not recognize its own true nature. All the same, have not many conversations started so? What makes me uh, augur well of this one is his style, which is different from that of the other young men whose letters I have had occasion to see. It is impossible not to recognize an unction, a profound seriousness and great conviction in this useful Levite's prose. He has about him the gentle virtue of a Massillon. All right, there we go. That's that chapter done. Short one, short and sweet. Have your say on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.